He was at Jamestown. He was on the Mayflower. And maybe, just maybe, he also inspired a character in Shakespeare. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Stephen Hopkins is a settler you likely didn't hear about during American history in grade school. But there are compelling reasons why maybe you should have, and now one of his relatives is trying to correct that oversight. Andrew Buckley has produced a film called Stefano, the true story of Shakespeare's shipwreck. In it, he walks in Stephen Hopkins' footsteps, sometimes literally, to talk about his role in the white settlement of North America, and, as the title of the film suggests, his possible appearance as a character in Shakespeare's The Tempest. There are historians who theorize that parts of The Tempest were inspired by an account of the storm that wrecked a ship resupplying the endangered Jamestown colony in 1609 and landed them in Bermuda. Stephen Hopkins was on that ship, and as you'll hear, Andrew Buckley's film suggests Shakespeare knew that and used it in The Tempest. Andrew joined us from his home in Cape Cod to lay all this out for a podcast that we call How Now, Stefano? Andrew Buckley is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Andrew, why don't we start at square one? Remind us who Stephen Hopkins was. Stephen Hopkins was, I mean, the the short way of putting it is, uh, he was the only person, passenger on board the Mayflower, who had been to North America before. Something must have changed after the birth of Giles, because in the spring of 1609, Stephen deeded his plot of land to his mother-in-law, the alehouse owner, Joan Kent, for safekeeping. As a widow, she was allowed to own land, whereas his wife, Mary, could not at the time. Stephen was about to take a risk that could end in his death. And uh, he plays a a pivotal role, not only in um, the story of Virginia, but also 10 years later with the uh, fledgling Plymouth colony. It seemed good to the company for many considerations to send some amongst them to Massasoit, the greatest commander amongst the savages bordering about us. Okay, so he made these two famous voyages, and that's why we're talking about them. And we're going to start, I think, talking about the second voyage, which is the Mayflower part of the story. Mm. So what role did he play there? He was informally the head of the strangers, as they've been called. There were four groups. You had the uh, the settlers, people that were known as the strangers. You had the pilgrims. You had the crews. And, of course, you had the servants. They were headed for the mouth of the Hudson River. Um, They were blown off course. And they headed instead north around the tip of Cape Cod. And he is believed to be instrumental in making sure, before they stepped foot on dry land that they were going to have some sort of understanding as to what the government was going to be like because they were outside of the their charter. And so that is where the Mayflower Compact came from, which was a document to say that was going to be government by the consent of the people, uh, not just the wealthy people, but everyone, including the servants. And how do you know all this? Uh, some of it was passed down to me. He is my 11th or 12th great-grandfather. Um, uh, my mother was a Hopkins. She's a Hopkins from East Orleans, grew up on Hopkins Lane. 
And uh, as I'm uh, fond of saying is that, you know, my family came to uh, North America 400 years ago, and instead of heading west, they headed east, and they just stayed. And that was it. <laughs> that, was, that, was the, uh, that was the end of the adventures. Uh, but there seemed to be plenty of them beforehand. And so, you know, I learned these things. And then there was a book on the shelf uh, that, that I read called Hopkins and the Mayflower. And that was really interesting, you know, when I was about like 10. And then in high school, of course, I was exposed to Shakespeare. And the story was, is like, oh, well, you know, he had already been to North America before. He was shipwrecked on Bermuda and he got into trouble because he had a big mouth. <laughs> and then he got in trouble <laughs> yeah, again. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and also, and, but the thing is, I, I looked at this and I was saying, this reminds me of any number of people in my family. Um, <laughs> you recognized people, yourself and your family in, in uh, the story. Yes, and the, the other thing was that, you know, his, his fam- he was very, very committed to his family. You know, we, we, I, it, it led me to always want to be able to tell this story as I've been making films for um, public media with our Hit and Run History project is to be able to have stories that have movement from one place to another place and to be and lesser known stories. Good morning. Well, it's about to get started. Go uh, meet up with Andrew in Plymouth to get started on this crazy walk. Ah, that, now you're anticipating my next question, and you said movement, mm. uh, because you don't just tell Hopkins' story in your film, but you and your crew physically trace his trail in America and in the shipwreck and uh, back to England and also coming to Cape Cod. And your first journey in the film is not at the beginning of Hopkins' story. Instead, you, you start at Plymouth and you follow in the footprints of a trek that Hopkins took when the early settlement there was uh, failing. Having here again refreshed ourselves, we proceeded in our journey, the weather being very hot for travel. Oh, I think I might get a jumbo dog. The pilgrims sent Hopkins and another settler, along with the Native American guide, Squanto, who we might all remember from sixth grade history, um, to seek out help from a powerful Native American chief about 50 miles away. For these and the like ends, it pleased the governor to make choice of Stephen Hopkins and Edward Winslow to go unto him, and having a fit opportunity by reason of a savage called Tisquantum that could speak English coming unto us. Chris Wessling, uh, Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, following the footsteps of my ancestor Squanto and his uh, personal relationship with Stephen Hopkins and all of his travels. The first half of the film really does, is interspersed with this journey to Poconoke, this 50-mile walk that we took. And we are going with uh, a member of our crew who is uh, also a member of the Wampanoag tribe, who himself, Chris Wessling, had portrayed Squanto in an earlier documentary film. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. Um, but I, you, it, I can see the allure of telling the story of a walk. Uh, and yeah. I'm a big walker, too. And honestly, watching the documentary, it does remind me a little bit of the Amazing Race reality show, which is a good thing. Oh, yeah. I'm a fan. I um, we see that. you guys buying snacks at 7-Eleven and stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. This was a 50-mile trek and a lot... A lot happens. It's fun. And as you say, you take along this young man who's a member of the uh, Wampanoag tribe. So how'd that happen? How'd you, how'd you hook up with Chris? Well, it would have been very easy to make a film uh, that was told in chronological order about my great white ancestor. 
I did not want that to be this because when he was in Plymouth and running a tavern, um, which really changes the idea of what people think about the pilgrims, he was running a tavern, selling alcohol. And when the Native Americans came to Plymouth, they stayed at his house. So I wanted to be able to demonstrate why. What is it about Stephen Hopkins that gave him such a good relationship with Native Americans. And if we're going to tell that story, we couldn't tell it just from his perspective, but we needed to tell it from a Native American perspective as well. And since Squanto also had traveled to England when Stephen Hopkins was in Virginia, that that suddenly, we're getting two different threads that are eventually ending up. So the thing is, we we needed to be able to tell that and having Chris there, who had portrayed a young Squanto, really added a new layer to things. Huh. And and so, Chris, we, he portrayed a young Squanto in, in this film series that was a, a part of the Mayflower Plymouth 400 celebrations. And so you kind of yeah. tracked him down. It must have been pretty funny for him to get a call. Hey. <laughs> oh, it was actually, yeah. And it was, it was actually even better than that because, see, I had gone to Paula Peters, who had made that film. I watched the film. And afterwards, I went up and I said, you know, I, I'm making this film about Stephen Hopkins. And of course, you know, I want to be able to talk about more about what's going on here. I want to get your perspective on what was going on in Plymouth beforehand. And here's what you, you know, you've made this film about the kidnapping of, uh, of Squanto. And I want to be able to talk about that more. Can I have an interview? So I interviewed her, but she said, I'd like to in- bring along the young man who played Squanto. And so then afterwards, I said, you know, we're going to be taking this 50-mile walk. Do you want to come along? And he said, absolutely. I'll put the skins on and everything. I said, no, you can wear whatever you want. Street clothes is okay. (laughs) (laughs) But that's how it started. And so then we took the walk, and then he went to England with us. And Chris had never been on a plane before. Okay, that that's amazing. Um, and now I want to circle back to Shakespeare and the Tempest. So let's talk about the Sea Venture. Two passengers stood out, Nomantec and Matt Chumps, natives of Virginia, sent as emissaries and now returning home, and William Strachey, former business partner to William Shakespeare, and was made secretary to the mission. Uh, and that is the ship that Stephen Hopkins took headed for Jamestown that wrecked off of Bermuda. And this is the trip that he took before he went. He ended up in Plymouth. So this is a shipwreck that was written up in an account by a man named William Strachey. A true repertory by William Strachey. A most dreadful tempest, the manifold deaths whereof are here to the life described. And it was his account that uh, made it back to Shakespeare, ostensibly. What are the elements of William Strachey's account that that make it into Shakespeare's play? There's a description, for instance, of St. Elmo's fire. What else? Uh, The real interesting thing is that they're talking about uh, you know, he's describing a tempest. People in England have no real concept of what a hurricane is like. For four and twenty hours, the storm in a restless tumult had blown so exceedingly as we could not apprehend in our imaginations any possibility of greater violence. Winds and seas were as mad as fury and rage could make them. There was not a moment in which the sudden splitting or instant oversetting of the ship was not expected. But more importantly, is a less visually dramatic thing, but rather a breakdown of society because after the ship, after they make it through the storm, they realize they have a leak and every male set of hands had to man those pumps 24 hours a day because people were just getting, this is manual labor. And 
uh, Strachey says, you know, hands that never knew labor uh, or work were set to work on these pumps. And, you know, you're, you're in the opening scene of The Tempest, you know, you're having the, the nobles being told by the bosun, you know, get below, you're, you're in our way. And they're, they're, the nobles are taking great affront to this uh, when actually it's like, no, you're, you're useless now. You know, your position means nothing. We're going to die if you don't get out of my way and let me do my work. And so in the same sort of sense, is it's, it's less visually dramatic. But the fact is, here we have a very hierarchical um, society that all of a sudden everybody has to work or we're all going to die. And all of a sudden, the, uh, the, the master cries, land. And they're able to make their way to the dreaded Isle of Devils, which, uh, again, there are elements of Strachey in The Tempest, whereby they're talking about these, you know, the howling of birds and things like that, when actually, um, you know, it, it ends up actually being paradise. They, they realize that they need to get off of there. And the, the lieutenant governor, uh, Sir Thomas Gates, wants to continue on to Jamestown. And so they, they decide to build two vessels. Around Christmas time, Stephen Hopkins has said effectively that the governor of Virginia um, has no authority in Bermuda because they're not in England. They're not in Virginia. They're out of the, his jurisdiction. And he's actually correct. Well, Gates was a soldier and he treated Hopkins like he was a soldier. So he was brought up on charges of mutiny and, it was, and he pleaded for his life. Um, you know, the better sort stepped forward. They came forward and said, look, spare his life, including Strachey. You know, it's a great, uh, you open up with a shipwreck uh, and a hurricane. Uh, it's a great way to start a story. Uh, yeah, that keeps them in the seats. So remind us, why was your ancestor, uh, Stephen Hopkins, on the ship? Uh, well, you know, it's uh, at that time, you know, the, the uh, economy in England was changing. The towns expanded quite considerably and you needed to feed that urban population. To feed the urban population, agriculture had to become more efficient. That meant you needed to enlarge the farms. And we had great civil unrest as a consequence of that. The agricultural labourers were on the verge of starvation. And, of course, that drove people uh, uh, overseas out of poverty. What you had in North America was land. Land that you could own rather than a tenant farmer. Absolutely, yes. Well, what evidence is there that Stephen Hopkins is a model for Stefano in The Tempest? Maybe you could lay out the parallels for us that you see. Sure. I mean, first of all, there's just the name. I mean, <laughs> Stephen Hopkins and Stefano. Okay, so let's let's take that superficial one. But more importantly, Stefano or Stefano is a uh, he's a butler, or uh, you know, the uh, origin of that term is a bottler, someone who actually serves alcohol. And what is and and Stefano rides you know ashore on a uh, butt of sack, you know, a cask of sherry which he then spends the rest of the play getting progressively drunker on. Stephen Hopkins was from a family of tavern keepers. There are, as Strachey talks about the fact that they were making alcohol both out of, you know, they were soaking juniper berries in water, and they were also making something from uh, the palm tree hearts. And so there's alcohol involved as there as well. Now, uh, I'm going to take that one step further, make the big leap to be able to say, well, it was Christmas when Stephen Hopkins started spouting off about who had authority, trying to overthrow the um, things. And, you know, I can imagine that Christmas was a time that people drank. And he was, <laughs> so, you know, that, that was some liquid courage right there. But the fact is that, you know, even if uh, Sir Thomas Gates is Prospero, 
and uh, Stephen Hopkins is is Stefano. Um, you know, you have the drunken, uh, mm, let's say, middle class clown trying to overthrow the ruler of the island. And since Tempest was written for King James, you know, and King James really did enjoy his divine right of authority, let's make sure that there is some comeuppance for this uh, drunken, uh, us- uh, you know, uh, attempted usurper. But at the same time, there's mercy. At the end of the play, Trinculo and Stefano are, are you know, forgiven. They've learned their lesson and they continue on. And the same thing happens with Stephen Hopkins. No trouble from him ever reported ever again in the Virginia colony. So you see a lot of parallels. Um, it's interesting. How do you feel about Shakespeare's take on your ancestor? I mean, <laughs> Stefano, he's a great character. He's a great comic character, but he's also this agent of evil and or greed or power. And, you know, he, he plots ineptly to, to kill Prospero. He's a drunk. He's he's pretty gullible and certainly distractible. Yeah. It, well, I mean, he's, he's friends with the one native on the island. And here's the interesting thing. We, you know, he, he is the rising middle class that, that North America colonization allows for. He is, and so therefore he must be made fun of. He must be exaggerated. And so, um, but he seems to, you know, in, in one way, is getting along with Caliban. On the other hand, he's enslaving. He's using. He's basically he's enslaving the native in order to rise up. And you know, we we get a, a case of that where uh, later on you have these colonists who have made their fortunes in Virginia coming back to England, and they're still being treated as yokels. No matter how much money they have, they're still commoners. But Strachey uh, actually had returned uh, to England. I'm just wondering what it would have been like for him to be able to see what <laughs> what he had written uh, coming to life on stage. So you'd think he would have been quite thrilled, or kind of maybe even disappointed that he didn't get to, to do that himself. And watching his description of what he'd experienced get turned into impossible, magical uh, phenomena being created by a spirit, that must have been both uplifting and a little weird. You'd surely expect him to be sitting. Uh, so it's funny because you said we started the conversation uh, with you saying how you saw your family in Stephen Hopkins, the account of Stephen Hopkins. And now it sounds like you're saying you see your family in Stefano. <laughs> Shakespeare's yeah. character too. It's. I mean, it's. We we will admit. You know, he gets progressively worse as he, as he gets progressively drunker. But at the same yes. time, you know, he is the frontier tavern keeper. Any place on any frontier, a, a tavern is a crossroads. And, you know, I, there's one thing that I think that my, my, uh, is certainly said about my family and it's certainly said about my mother and everything is that they're entertainers. Anybody's welcome in the house. Um, someone described my house once as, you know, it's it, the cornucopia. It's just, you know, you'll come in and we'll, we'll, we'll make room for you. And so, uh, and there's, you know, plenty to eat, plenty to drink and lots of laughter and such like that. And I'm sure that, you know, if you, you know, if, if you're a snob <laughs> and an aristocrat, uh, you know, you're going to look at the worst of that and, and turn it into that. And also the fact is, um, you know, uh, travel is a really big thing in my family. Um, and so I can see that as well as that, you know, it, there's, it's, it's not a coincidence that this story is a travel story. Uh, it's because I want it to be because it's in my blood, <laughs> I feel. So at the end of your film, you call the story the original American story. Make the case for us. What, why? Oceans, frontiers, 
islands, those that we find ourselves on and those that we make for ourselves. That's been our recurring theme. When I say American, I mean what was coming forward, not the original story of the place that is now known as North America. I mean, I'm talking about the culture and the fact that, and, I, and I, we, we talk about this as well when we're at, the, uh, at Shakespeare's Globe, this is the point in which cultures diverge. There's an English culture that's moving along on its own little track, um, but then there are people on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, and they're developing their own culture. Colonialism can be mapped right onto this. The people are scattered out. Uh, authority is not centralized. Uh, people are, you know, they're they're encountering native peoples, and they are figuring out how can I how can I use this native person to my advantage. There is alcohol involved. There's all these all these elements. You know, there is that libertarian streak uh, that that is kind of unique. You know, in in the world often to Americans, which is, I'm going to do my own thing. You know, I'm going to question authority. And it's a journey. And I think that Americans are always out seeking more, I think, um, you know, for good or for bad. I think this original American story is about somebody who gets into trouble, has some several brushes with death. And at the same time, uh, by the end of it, Stephen Hopkins is, you know, he's a, he's a wealthy guy. And his family is important to him, and um, and he's running a tavern, of which you know I'm I'm the, I'm the legacy of that. England was an island that Hopkins escaped from, only to find himself stranded, gratefully, on Bermuda. Jamestown was an island fort and prison of the English on the American frontier. Caliban's island was his by birthright, yet Prospero takes it, and Stefano covets it. All our players in this story were searching for that, to attain it or regain it. And that is what makes this the original American story. It's learning that one person one person can make a difference uh, being in the right place at the right time, or the wrong place. In this particular case, in the case of the Tempest, often in the wrong place with the wrong, with the wrong alcohol <laughs> content. <laughs> well, Andrew, I am so glad you were able to talk today. Thank you so much. Oh, no, this has been a pleasure, and uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And, the, and I couldn't have made this film without some really great interviews at the Folger. Andrew Buckley is creator and host of the public media series Hit and Run History. His latest film, Stefano, The True Story of Shakespeare's Shipwreck, premiered on Rhode Island PBS in January 2021. To watch Stefano, you can find out about broadcasts, screenings, and video on demand by going to hitandrunhistory, all one word, dot com. That's hitandrunhistory, all one word, dot com. Our podcast, How Now Stefano, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director 
Michael Whitmore.